So we were able to actually apply artificial intelligence in partnership with some experience that we have from our healthcare field to treat a satellite like a patient whose temperature you can take, you know, a couple hundred times a day in some cases, uh, which leads to a fairly predictable patient. And, and that's really how this all got started and, and this capability really uh, came to bear. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, and welcome to The Downlink Podcast. This week's episode is coming from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it's about resiliency, specifically two very different technologies, the companies and the defense program that's funding their development. Defense leaders from Secretary Lloyd Austin on down are constantly using the words resilient and resiliency to describe the Department of Defense's approach to maintaining strategic superiority on orbit. In the simplest terms, the strategy is to place such a large number of satellites in orbit that perform the same task that disabling or destroying one or a few really wouldn't affect operations on the ground. Now, whether this strategy will disincentivize the targeting of U.S. space assets is debatable, perhaps even theoretical, but the need to make mission-critical satellites more resilient against a space environment or attack isn't. And that's where the Air Force Research Laboratory and the nonprofit Space Incubator, New Space New Mexico, come into the picture. Together, they have selected 18 companies to participate in their Igniter program. The AFRL is funding the Igniter program as part of an $11 million contract it awarded to New Space New Mexico last year. You'll notice that the dollar amount isn't exactly huge, but neither are the companies. There are small businesses that are developing what could be big technologies. And when you follow the money, you can see what capabilities the DOD is interested in acquiring. And these technologies, like the threats they address, are anything but theoretical. But before we get to the companies and the technologies, I took a tour of the New Space New Mexico Unite and Ignite facility and sat down with Casey Durad, the organization's founder and CEO, and Scott Maithner, who leads strategy and integration. Well, Here's the hello. tour and our no, conversation. So here's our place. This is the launch pad. We had, um, so we got some congressional funding to set up what's called a new space innovation hub. And the first part of it is to set up collaboration centers that the companies need to help. And so the, the first stage of it was to set up kind of a prototyping center. But companies can come in, use it. They can have meetings here. They could come do prototyping. They could just have a desk. They could come sit and work. They, we have a lounge area. And anyways, one of, the, one of the things we say that New Space New Mexico does is we unite and ignite space. So we unite by bringing everyone together, and then we ignite by providing resources to help these companies move faster, get through, you know, the, accelerate their pace of innovation. So our launch pad is set up in the Unite and Ignite, like over in this area. We can have events, we can have people over. That area is the Ignite, where we have um, equipment from companies and companies have said what they need. So one, they wanted a clean room, they needed a, a thermal vac chamber. So we've been slowly getting equipment that the companies say they need. So trying to help them with like these high cost items so they could come Casey, Scott, it's really a pleasure to finally get to New Space New Mexico, to the actual workspace. Hey, Laura, we're happy you're here, and we're happy to show you around. We're excited that you're here, and great to be with you. And Casey, tell us, you know, how did you start New Space New Mexico? I mean, you've been in operation for just a few years. Right. Well, uh, thank you. I had a long history of working with the Air Force Research Lab, running a lot of the partnerships. Started out uh, working on space systems, but later 
move to leading a lot of the partnerships for the Air Force Research Lab. I would see from the inside of the government how hard it was for companies to navigate and understand how to get into the space system. So about five years ago, jumped out of Air Force Research Lab, started New Space New Mexico as a nonprofit. Our vision is to grow the space industry from New Mexico for the nation. And we have had a lot of great things happen, and I think we're actually making a little bit of a, a dent on that vision. So, well, And Scott, tell us about you. Well, um, I'm, I'm a, uh, most of my career was in the Air Force. I was 25 years in the Air Force, and I did a lot of different things, mostly space. Interestingly enough, my first assignment was at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And as it turned out, my final assignment was at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And it was during that time that Casey and I worked together. I was in the Directed Energy Directorate. Casey was leading all the tech engagement activities, and so we'd worked together pretty closely. Um, it's been seven years since I retired. Casey reached out to me uh, and was sharing her ideas about New Space New Mexico and convinced me to, to join her. Uh, so my role in, in the organization is, is I do operations and integration for New Space New Mexico. Casey, you know, um, I've come here and I've met with a couple of the companies that are part of this program called the Igniter Program. Can you explain what's the point of the Igniter Program? Okay, well, um, we started out where one of the first things we did in starting New Space New Mexico is, ha okay, we want to grow the space industry. So what does industry need? New Space New Mexico, I'd say our biggest niche and expertise is that we actually listen to the companies. We have convened them. We've asked them, like, how, what do you need? We tried to listen to the companies and understand where are their barriers, where are the gaps, where can New Space New Mexico help? We, with some funding that we've gathered, we're uh, trying to set up what we're calling this new space innovation hub where we put together resources to really help the companies accelerate the pace of innovation. Well, part of it was we need, you know, to put some kind of structured program where we can help some of the companies. But basically, we had numerous companies reach out saying, yeah, we've gone through this accelerator. I had a company, a data company, that had made it first on an AFWorks pitch day. But they didn't know where to go. And, you know, so they're they're kind of hitting that valley of death where, you know, they, they have a good concept, but they don't know how to get it to a product through and then get to sales. So we set up the, the new Space Igniter to be, it's kind of an incubator-like, we say incubator-like because it's not exactly that, um, where we bring companies in and we can provide services and connections um, at different levels. So the idea, though, is to basically get these suppliers to buyers. So we start off with doing some assessment, figuring out where their tech, you know, where their different readiness levels are, what they need. And as they level up, then we take some of these companies and put them through, you know, the next level of where navigating where they might need access to some high-cost equipment. Um, here at the launch pad, we have capabilities where we help connect them to experts. And the final stage of it is to do what we are calling show spaces. Um, we do a number of showcase events for them, whether it's an introduction to a program manager, you know, a single person, or maybe we might have multiple companies pitching to a private investor network. And so the whole idea is where we see where they are, we help them with their pitch, we help them navigate. Some, some are going to take longer than others, so it's not this set cohort that, you know, is there for two months. So we're going to be working with these companies, and the goal is that we do more and more like what we did with RS21, where we get them to those customers and to this sustainable funding at the end of the program. Now, Scott, it would seem to me that a lot of the companies, if not all of the companies, and I could be wrong, and please do correct me, are looking for contracts and getting contracts and getting this mentoring basically in a direction to work um, for the needs and to fulfill the requirements of the Department of Defense. And I mean, am, am I right about that? Uh, partially. I mean, these companies um, have different opportunities that they're seeking. Some of, um, some of them are with the 
the Space Force or the Air Force Research Laboratory, they're really looking for, they, you know, they've got an idea or a really good concept, right? They're looking for customers. And, and the, it could be the government, um, the Space Force, different organizations within the Space Force. It could be other larger companies. Um, so they're looking for those opportunities who might be interested in their concept. They're looking for those uh, sales that Casey talked about. So the Igniter program you know, is taking those concepts and then helping them build out their prototypes and their products and then getting to sales, getting in front of potential customers. And so that's one of the ways that we're different is this new Space Igniter program. You know, there's a lot of activity out there uh, with respect to um, different accelerators, and they're really good at sort of doing a, a, a assessment of who's out there, right, and who has ideas. We positioned ourselves a little bit downstream. So we're, we're targeting small and early growth companies that have a mature concept. They have something there, right? And that's what we sought out with our application process. And so we, you know, for this first round, we've selected uh, 20 concepts and 18 companies to work with them. Um, particular um, theme to, to no, what that's you are a, looking for? That's a great question. Be, this is the first time with this program. And we were thinking about, should we, you know, we t- we're talking with our partners at Air Force Research Laboratory. We could have easily focused on a particular theme. You know, for example, trusted autonomy was a theme for the hyperspace challenge, right? We purposely went out and said any space-related concept for this first go-around, right? So we have a whole host of different um, concepts that these these companies are, are pitching or, or they applied for, anything from launch concepts to um, artificial intelligence to position navigation and timing technologies. We have a very wide range of, of these technologies, uh, the, the basis for these concepts. In the future, we may target a particular subset based on what the needs of the uh, you know, the yes, government sir. might be. So, uh, but for this first round, it was any space-related concept, which is exciting. I think as we go forward with this, you know, we, you know, we'll have the opportunity to pivot and focus in on certain areas. But at, at the beginning, it was just uh, anything related to space. I, I'm just going to sort of, you know, counter that just a little bit, just because, you know, I spoke with Bill Goodman and now the folks over at RS21, and you just mentioned launch. You know, all these things, though, do build upon the concept of making you know, our military, our security space, and, and hopefully I would, you know, I'd like to think even the commercial space actors as well as civil space more resilient, whether it be you know, natural occurrences or things that are basically nasty, man-made sort of um, attacks on our space infrastructure. Am I just seeing that wrong, or I just sort of lucked out and you know bumped into these two companies that are really looking hard at resiliency? No, I think you're right. I think resiliency is an important concept for for the space force right now, and and I think you know the real advantage that we have in the United States is is our innovation, and the government has realized that to be successful, to continue to be successful in space, that they're going to have to leverage. That those commercial capabilities. And it's exciting to see all the programs that they've put in place across the board, and we're happy to be part of that, uh, that whole enterprise. Well, and, and I've talked about where early discussions on resiliency was, you know, where the military just had these huge, exquisitely designed everything but the kitchen sink in it in capabilities and a big fat target, basically. <laughs> and they've talk, they talked about, you know, we need to have these smaller set satellites or these networks and be able to uh, replace and so on. But I also think the resiliency in what we're doing with the igniter is really helping open up the aperture to more players. You know, 10 years ago, there was very, it's a lot of large companies, uh, especially on the military side, there was not very many contracts to not very many contractors or uh, providers of innovation. So what we're doing is really like opening that up, making sure there's more entrance, helping them navigate through this very complex system that we call space, space industry. And so what is going to make New Space New Mexico resilient? been here for five years you've got an amazing crew of people out there mostly kids mostly interns but you know you've also got Scott we have a few others you have a few Mm -hmm. others um 
What do you need to be more resilient? Well, for me, right now, we have a lot of the the products and being able to put on forums like our space industrial-based conference, being able to have this launch pad and some of these capabilities for our companies. Um, we're funded with a grant, and we're very thankful for that from the Air Force Research Lab, uh, which is really great. But what we've told the team is this gives us a chance to test out some of these capabilities or some of these services the companies need while we're covered with a grant. But in the long term, maybe the companies would pay for these services. And so the resiliency is if we're doing good things and we're really listening to these customers, I call these small and medium-sized companies trying to to get into the space industry are our customers. If we're doing the right things for them, we're going to, you know, funds and resources are going to continue because we're doing the right thing and it's needed. And if it's helpful, we'll stay in business. If it's not, we'll go home. Casey, Scott, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for spending the time with us. It was fun. Thank you very much. Great to see you. For our first Igniter company, we're going to start with the notion that in order to survive the harsh environment of space and solar weather, and what an adversary may use to disable or destroy a satellite, having armor would be pretty sweet. But armor is heavy and the cost of launch is often measured by the kilo. Bill Goodman, who everyone calls Dr. Bill, may just have the answer for both defense, civil, and commercial applications. Dr. Bill is the CEO of Goodman Technologies. His company uses 3D printers to manufacture extremely hard yet lightweight materials that he says can provide the kind of protection electronics need to survive pretty much anything, including nuclear detonation. Here's our conversation. Dr. Bill, thank you so much for letting me come by. I am delighted to have you here today. So, Bill, take a moment and introduce yourself and just what Goodman Technologies does. So, uh, I'm Dr. Bill Goodman. I'm the founder and acting president and CEO of Goodman Technologies. Uh, I started Goodman Technologies in July of 2016, it was 30 days after learning that my 13-year-old needed heart surgery and one week after being laid off from my job. And, and I'll tell you, that's a perfect time to start a business, and here's the reason why. You cannot fail. So if you were to look at some of my blogs, I always have the little hashtag, no failure zone. Failure is a choice, and uh, in, in, in my world... And in my customers' world, there is no opportunity for failure. Well, so as I'm here in your headquarters, let's do a little show and tell. Want me to bring this over? You got that? Yeah, so let me, because you're going to want to describe things, I hear. Why don't we start with what looks to be a licorice wafer cookie or perhaps a waffle iron Indeed, sort of we can creation. start with that. It's, it's kind of dark on, uh, well, it's all very dark. It's very black. But on one side, it's very shiny, and it's got a mirror. In fact, you know, one could possibly do one's hair in this. So what you're holding in your hand, Laura, is at the time, it was the world's largest 3D-printed silicon carbide mirror substrate. We made this for NASA on a Phase II uh, Small Business Innovation Research Grant. And then uh, the smaller segment that you're holding in your hand there was, uh, was polished up to a mirror finish. And then once uh, one has that super polished surface, we're talking about fractions of a meter or a unit called microns. We put a specific coating tailored to the wavelengths of light that we want to move around off the mirrors. It's really light. Why is it so light? I mean, it's big, but it's light. I mean, it looks like it could be almost like a car brake kind of thing, but it certainly is not that kind yeah, of heaviness. That, that's a 10-inch diameter mirror substrate, and uh, we, we've made them uh, as large as uh, 12 inches diameter to, to date. Uh, we have the ability to join together pieces, so the, the other... Substrate there is actually made by joining four things. This was to show scalability of technology. The reason it's so light 
is it's made with silicon carbide. And uh, silicon carbide is the, is the first cousin of a diamond. So uh, I've got a diamond in my ring here from UCLA. And uh, every atom in that diamond is, is a carbon atom bonded to another carbon atom in a, in a certain arrangement. Silicon carbide turns out to be the first cousin of a diamond, and we're replacing every other carbon atom with a silicon atom. And so what you get is something that's very light, very hard. It's also very good at conducting heat, and that allows the mirror substrate to be uh, what we call dimensionally stable. You've got all kinds of things in here that have been up in space. Indeed. What else you got? Well, uh, in this little box over here, I have a, a bunch of things that actually come back from space. I've, I've worked on a number of space missions in the past. Uh, materials on International Space Station Experiment. If I take all those first letters and put them together, it spells Missy. So I've had things fly on Missy 1, Missy 6, Missy 8. In the future, I hope to have some regular shielding on Missy 14. But I've also had things fly on the Air Force X-37B. They're drone and... Uh, can you talk about it? Well, I, I can tell you a little bit about it. Yeah, I do. But let me ask you a question, Laura. Have you ever held something in your hand that's come back from outer space? No, not until now. Well, you are about to, to do this. So here, why don't you take this little... Uh, mirror that's been to space and back and uh, and hold that in your hand and uh, tell your audience uh, uh, about what it is. It's about as thick as perhaps maybe two quarters stacked on top of each other. It's black and for most of the uh, sort of surface of the quarter looking thing, it's it's a mirror. That coating on the mirror was designed from the periodic table of elements up and it had to meet several requirements. Number one, the, the coating has to survive the naturally occurring space radiation environment. So in low Earth orbit, we're in what's called the, the proton belt of the Van Allen belts, where protons get trapped and uh, they and interact they with charged. matter. They can, things can get charged. Uh, electronics can be damaged. Um, things can become radioactive. And, uh, and release things like gamma rays, become gamma emitters. And so we needed to avoid that in these mirror coatings because usually with a telescope, there's a camera behind it. And inside the camera, like inside an iPhone, is a thing called a focal plane array. And if uh, a pixel in the focal plane array of the camera gets tickled by a gamma ray, it washes out. It's as if you were to point your iPhone at the sun. That's the kind of image you would get. So that's not a good thing if you're trying to track things that are also moving at velocities of seven kilometers per second or, or more. So, so we had to design the coating to survive the space radiation environment, a man-made radiation event, and going in and out of the sunlight multiple times a day, it had to be dimensionally stable. Because if we're just changing the prescription of the telescope by fractions of a micron, it will go out of focus. And so... Um, so that's, that could become a very expensive missed opportunity. Indeed. Could be a bad day for someone somewhere. So recently, your company was accepted into the inaugural Igniter program. So what cool product are you engineering and what's the deliverable? Ah, that's an excellent question. So the, the new space igniter, uh, our, our entry into that was for additively manufactured CubeSats uh, with the goal of mass producing them. And uh, the, the reason CubeSats are so interesting is if you look at current space assets, where they be military or civilian or commercial, uh, they typically uh, take a long time to build, and they cost a lot of money. So if we were to just focus on the military for a second, we have communication satellites. We've got navigation. We have tracking and surveillance satellites, and we have early warning satellites. All these systems were very, very expensive, and they are always at risk to naturally occurring events like Solar flares, as an example, 
or to man-made things like ASATs or uh, SJ-21 satellites, which can grab a satellite out of one orbit and put it into another, or uh, directed energy. And uh, there's, there's two kinds. You can use lasers or you can use RF energy, microwaves, to, to damage things. And, and, of course, you can always uh, do a cyber attack on satellites. So some of the things that we've done here at Goodman were to develop the materials and the manufacturing processes to make nanocomposites and build CubeSats with uh, telescopes on them. What's a nanocomposite, though? What does that really mean? I mean, nano, we know nano is, but what's a nanocomposite? That's an excellent question. Here's where the nanocomposite is. So that 3D printed mirror substrate that you had started out as a paste. And uh, just like squeezing toothpaste out of a, a tube... But in this case, the toothpaste is made of lots of little particulates. Some of the particulates in the paste are uh, micron-scaled, but some of them are on the nanoscale. And when we talk about uh, a nanoscale, something that everybody's familiar with these days is COVID virus. Well, your typical COVID virus cell is, is about 100 nanometers in diameter. So some of the nanoparticulates that we're working with in our nanopaste materials are smaller than the COVID virus. So these nanocomposites, you're able to print them, and you're able to print them in such a way that gives a kind of shielding to these CubeSats against you know, different kinds of radiation, possibly different kinds of uh, directed energy attacks. How expensive is this? Um, what I'm going to show you here, Laura, is something that we made for the Air Force. This is a test coupon. You can see it's already been uh, broken. But what's special about this particular coupon is I'm, I'm going to use it as a nail file. All right. So I'm actually using this nano composite, which is silicon carbide based on this side as a... As or a hot structure, things that can survive extreme heat. And I now have a very sharp fingernail. And uh, for, for you listeners out there, uh, what, what you would see is that my fingernail being scraped off on this turned it from black to white. True statement? True statement. Now, uh, on this side of the composite, you notice I'm... I'm filing. It's making a different sound than the other side, but no, no nail is coming off on that. That is an entirely different material right there, and that's a polymer-based composite, but embedded within it is a very secret and proprietary formula that makes this composite survivable. And uh, it, Survivable it, against what? The effects of a nuclear weapon. So there are a lot of things that that come out of nuclear weapons, and we're not gonna we're not going to uh, describe on this interview what those what those are and and whatnot. But but just know that we've we've made something and done some testing, and uh, these kinds of materials would make the shells of our cubesats. And so this is what we would call a nano laminate composite, where laminate means layers. So it's a multi-layered nanocomposite material. So that would be the box that makes up the CubeSat. Most CubeSats today are made with aluminum or titanium, so they start out with metal plates, and they machine them, and they piece them together, and they, they stuff the CubeSat with all kinds of electronics and instruments and, and things like that. Uh, what we're going to do at Goodman Technologies, we, we have a, a NASA Phase Two project where we're looking at automated robotic manufacturing systems, or ARMS for short, uh, which can make large-scale structures. And then in that way, we will be able to make many, many pieces for a CubeSat, uh, much the same way that Elon Musk makes Tesla automobiles. Now, in, in that vein, to talk about cost, you know, recently I interviewed an Air Force physicist who argues that satellites, especially those th that are commercial platforms in low Earth orbit or LEO, 
are somewhat naked. They're not launched with the kind of shielding they need, like if there was a solar storm or, or something worse, say a high-altitude nuclear detonation. Now, I know this is a long lead-in, but the reason I'm going after cost is that many of these companies rely on tried-and-true satellite hardware that's right off the shelf or standardized. And that way, they not only keep costs down in terms of developing their satellite, but they'll also know the weight up front, which then allows them to have a rough idea about how much it will cost to launch. So that's two costs that they're able to forecast and budget for. But if you harden a commercial satellite... Those two costs will go up by a lot. I've heard it could be by a factor of even 10. So now here's the question. Can this scale, not just for military uses, but for the commercial sector in such a way that even relatively new entrants can afford it? Indeed it can. So to address some of the points that you made, uh, in the past... And still, now in the present, electronics that must survive the ionizing energies that occur in space or those that could be produced by by humans requires very expensive electronics. They're called rad-hard electronics. And some of these electronics and processors and stuff can go for hundreds of thousands of dollars apiece. So if one can make... Uh, the structures of the satellite out of shielding, then an opportunity uh, is provided to use current off-the-shelf electronics like we would have in an ordinary iPhone or Android device, which is super powerful. Uh, if you look at the electronics that are, that are in these communications <laughs> devices today and uh, compare you know, to computers of yesteryear, they're just thousands of times faster and more powerful. Well, it turns out that the low-cost commercial off-the-shelf technologies and electronics are also much lower cost than these red-hard electronics. So there is literally an opportunity to get order of magnitude or more reduction of cost by not having to use radiation-hardened electronics in your satellite systems. Of course, this is a great payoff for, for all satellite uh, manufacturers, whether they be military or civilian or commercial. Some of the uh, so I do a lot of market analysis and and uh, data investigation and uh, you know seeing what competition does. Uh, one of the sources that I like to use is Bryce Space. They put out uh, you know reports uh, every year, sometimes a, a couple times a year, and. Uh, one of the, the data points that I like to use is for 6U CubeSats, uh, the average cost in 2019 was about $2.5 million per CubeSat. And uh, not long ago, we, we looked at a 12U CubeSat with a telescope on it to perform a mission for NASA and this got into the hands of some of the military services and, and whatnot. And uh, so we were making a, a much bigger CubeSat, a, a 12U, uh, using our materials and processes and, you know, having to account for uh, partners and subcontractors and ground operations and, and things like that. We, uh, at first blush, we looked at being able to do a 12U for about $5 million dollars that would have a lot of capability and uh, you could make a constellation of these 12 U's that would have the same capabilities as a much larger satellite system that would cost in the hundreds of millions to you know billions of dollars and would take a long time to manufacture so I think when people in the community the user community again military civil commercial, uh, see those kinds of numbers. I think when the space investment community sees uh, real proof here, people are going to be very, very excited about this. And lastly, when can the Air Force Research Lab expect this? This is all doable uh, within a 12 to 24 month time frame. Bill, thank you so much for your time. It's been great visiting with you. Um, I've been delighted to, to have you here, and uh, thank you for picking uh, 
Goodman Technologies to do a podcast on. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted. Dr. Bill never did tell me what exactly went up and came back down on the Air Force's super-secret uncrewed space plane, the X-37B, but I'd bet it was a material designed at the atomic level. So now let's get to our second igniter company, RS-21. What makes this company really interesting is that it has taken a software program it designed and developed to monitor medical patients and applied it to satellite health. I spoke with RS-21's Chief Technology Officer Cameron Bumgarner and Carrie Powell, who's the project manager for the space side of the business. Here's our conversation. Thank you for letting me come by for a visit. Yeah, thank you so much for coming by. We're really excited to share what we're up to. Excited to talk to you today. Before we go any further, let's do a quick round of introductions. Cameron, tell us about you and what you do here at RS21 and just what does RS21, um, the name of the company, I mean, what does it mean? Yeah, uh, that's that's a great question because we get that a lot. Um, so my name is Cameron Baumgartner. I am the chief technology officer here, but colloquially I, I introduced myself as the, the head nerd. Um, my job here is primarily supervising our uh, our technical capabilities, so our what we call our functional staff, which are data engineers, data scientists, software engineers, designers, uh, data analysts, and you know whatever we determine that we need next. We've built the company to deploy um, very advanced analytical and machine learning capabilities into spaces that are impactful for humanity and. What we've discovered is that you know you you can't just have one of the pieces of this puzzle in order to understand in order to to really make a difference. You you really need to have the whole picture working together to to make these things matter. RS twenty one got started eight years ago and originally was very focused on climate resilience, disaster preparedness, and those types of things. So our original name was Resilient Solutions 21, which was already short for Resilient Solutions for the 21st Century. We could never get a client to actually say those four words together, so we just concatenated it to RS2, uh, RS21, um, which we get more consistency with. And Carrie, what about you? What do you do here? Uh, so I'm Carrie Powell. I'm a project manager here at RS21. Um, so at a small business, that means that I am doer of a lot of things. I'm the systems engineer. I'm the budgeting officer. I handle security. I herd all the cats. I write the documents. Um, and I work primarily in the R&D and technical, the lab space and DOD. You know, if you pay enough attention to the military space leaders, whether it's through press releases or speeches, there's a word that's always in the talking points. That word is resiliency. But the funny thing is, you guys have been working on system resiliency in a very different commercial vertical. I mean, where did RS-21 really get its start? Yeah, we really got our start working in the federal government, but in in, uh, DHS. We started to understand resiliency from a systems perspective, looking at interconnected infrastructure networks. Folks have a difficult time conceptualizing and understanding some of the complex scenarios that can occur between, you know, things like your water network, your electrical infrastructure, that all of that is now networked with the internet, right? Being able to understand, you know, cascading failures or also things like criticality leads to some weird scenarios where, you know, infrastructure and upstate North Dakota can have big impacts on quality of life in Chicago. Um, So this really developed this way of thinking about these kind of complex challenges. And it's an interesting corollary because this is some of the same kind of thinking and problem-solving style that allowed us to succeed when when we started to move into kind of the DoD space and into space formally. So how did you guys get into space? I mean, why space? It's not like, you know, the other markets like, you know, Department of Homeland Security. I know you're involved in healthcare. I mean, it's not like those things are like small markets. I mean, space is kind of like another thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, uh, nobody has ever accused us of not being ambitious enough. 
Um, our mission is to do good with data, and, and these complex challenges are in a lot of different places. So that's where we've, we've really expanded into a lot of different large markets, right? When we were contacted by the U.S. Air Force Research Labs, they invited us to participate in what they call the Hyperspace Accelerator Challenge, and it's an opportunity for DOD, uh, you know, program managers and, and kind of leadership to come to private industry and say, we have this challenge that we're having a hard problem addressing. What, as private industry and, and kind of small businesses and some research organizations, what do you think about this challenge and what do you think you could bring to bear to help us here? Well, that makes that begs the question. I mean, what was the challenge that they brought to you? Yeah. So the theme of our cohort was called Trusted Autonomy, that satellites are specifically challenged with an increasingly hostile environment. They're extremely important assets. And they're a decent ways away. So you don't have, you know, instant communication and you can't just string a ladder up and go repair them, right? So they want to get to a place where these, these platforms are intelligently adapting to things that happen, uh, adjusting to things like space weather or uh, various component conditions and failures and things. When we got into the Accelerator Challenge, they do a great job of exposing you to some of the technical folks who actually deal with these challenges. And what we discovered is that to be able to take that next step and for the system to make the decision by itself, it has to first understand what's going on with itself, which turns out is more complicated than you would think. So we were able to actually apply artificial intelligence in partnership with some experience that we have from our healthcare field to treat a satellite like a patient whose temperature you can take, you know, a couple hundred times a day in some cases, uh, which leads to a fairly predictable patient. And, and that's really how this all got started and, and this capability really uh, came to bear. Um, we were very fortunate to, to win the hyperspace challenge in our cohort, I think um, because of the speed with which our team was able to produce a highly responsive solution. But um, yeah, yeah, I think uh, we've just been trying to hang on to the, the tiger by the tail since then. So, you know, now I know that you've been accepted into the Air Force Research Laboratory's Igniter program. So, Carrie, what's the deliverable? So, for our Directive Phase 2 SIPR that we were awarded after the win for the Hyperspace Challenge, what we ended up doing was uh, creating first a proof of concept and then a prototype, showing that on operational satellite data, this concept of using, uh, like Cam referenced, treating the satellite like a cancer patient, right? Trying to determine how much life the satellite has left, predict when it's going to enter safe mode show that that works not just on the turbofan data that we used in the, um, what is it, the hyper, sorry, hyperspace, hyper, the hyperspace challenge, mm-hmm. um, not just on this like turbofan fake data, but on real operational satellite data. And so we worked with our partners at AFRL and then also at SSC, Space Systems Command, to get access to data. Because all machine learning, it's all data hungry, data, data, data. That's all we were asking for. And so we were able to get um, a data set and create some synthetic data and just prove that this worked. So our good idea worked. And then we were also able to interact with the warfighters, with the end users of this tool, and talk to the Space Force and say, okay, If you have a tool that can predict when a satellite is going to enter safe mode, how does that fit into your workflow? How would you use it? How can we make this the best thing for you? Not just what I, Carrie Powell, think is best for you on your in your operations center, but what do you, as someone who's working down here, you know, on this watch floor, uh, what, what do you think? you need and how can we make this the best experience for you? So RS21, in addition to being a data science company, we have incredibly talented designers and UX and UI. And so we leverage that capability as well. So the prototype that we brought to the table really shows that full spectrum of capability where we have you know, a, a spinning globe that shows where the satellite was in orbit uh, when the telemetry data came down. So you can take into account effects from the South Atlantic anomaly. Right. And, you know, a space weather plug in. So you can say, okay, what was happening with a magnetic storm or what was going on with space weather when I experienced these conditions that caused the model to believe the satellite was going to enter safe mode? So it's this really cool, you know, combination of approaches, technologies, design that we brought to the table that I think has the customer really excited. 
So now just to be clear, I mean, this project is called space, uh, but under your roof, this word has an additional vowel. Carrie, how do you spell the name of your project and what's the meaning behind it? <laughs> I might have to hand this back over to Cam. I think he was a part of the original, but it's S-P-A-I-C-E. So I can't spell space correctly anymore. Anytime I try and type anything out, I add an extra A, but it's A-I. So that whole idea, and I honestly, I forget the acronym. Uh, it is the Space Prognostics Artificial Intelligence Computational Environment. I'm a little fuzzy on the C, but um, yeah, we uh, you know we were just kind of trying to create the most accurate description of the technology as possible, and it just turned out that you know it spelled space in the end of the day. It's funny how that happens sometimes. And Carrie, have you tested your space with an I system on an actual orbiting satellite? I mean, has it actually been working on something that's up there like in Leo? So we have not done a test on an operational satellite yet. We were actually just awarded a phase three SIBR a month ago. And the entire purpose of that phase three SIBR is to get that operational test. So we're going to be involved in this satellite. They're building it right now. So we'll get to look at the environmental data, see if we can feed that into our model, see how that works when they shake and bake it, right? They put it in the vacuum chamber. So we'll get that data. We can use that to train our model, see if that's a good source of data for us. Because like I said, data, 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 data hungry, looking at some of the transfer learning applications. It's really cool stuff. And then when they launch that satellite, space will be a part of the ground station software. And so from launch and early ops and through operation, uh, space will be down there assisting the operators, helping predict and prevent safe mode entries. And here's a question. I mean, because this is monitoring a satellite like a patient, does it have additional or need additional sensors, or are there already enough sensors on these satellites that you're pulling data from? I mean, will there be additional sensors that go up maybe in, in future satellites to build out that data set? So right now, the idea is that this is something that you can train and you can use just using your telemetry data. So health and status telemetry data. I sound like British. So it just pulls the like health and status telemetry data that's already coming down. So you don't have to add something new to the satellite. You don't need a new waveform, right? You don't need a new antenna. All we're doing is looking at the existing health and status telemetry data that's coming into the ground station and analyzing that. And that's where we're pulling the predictions from and some of the insights that we provide to the operator. So how does this help the operator make the space asset more resilient then? Because this is more than just, you know, an alarm system. I mean, there's a lot more under the hood here. There is. There is a lot under the hood. I've been privileged to work with some incredibly smart people here at RS21, and we have really leveraged that to put a lot of functionality into our tool. And so the first piece is the predictive piece. So it's telling the operator, hey, within the next 24 hours, this satellite has a 75% chance of entering safe mode. But what we did that's really cool is instead of just having this black box of AI, we uh, incorporated what's called explainable AI. So it's the why. So it's telling that operator not just like, oh, shoot, we think something's going to happen, but it's telling you these are the top 10 features. These are the components of the telemetry data that are leading the model to this prediction. So it says, look at this subsystem. Look at this error rate, right? Look at the temperature on your PCE1 board. So it's definitely providing that ability for the operator to act on the alert and to prevent a safe mode um, entry, which I think really improves that resiliency factor. Now, you're already doing great business with other verticals. You know, why has RS21 sought a berth in the Igniter program? I mean, what's the play? Yeah, I think, as you mentioned, um, you know, we work in a large, we, we, lurk in a, we work in a set of large markets. Um, if you look at some of those, healthcare, state and local government, you know, other federal agencies, they're also uh, not, they're, they're fairly well controlled and regulated, right? You've, in healthcare, you've got HIPAA and things like that. Um, one of the barriers that, that we deal with as a, you know, not a startup necessarily as much anymore, but, um, uh, you know, well, as a business, you're right. As a, as a smaller business, as you know, I, I unfortunately can't reach back into Jeff Bezos's wallet if I need to invest in something. Right. Well, if he's listening to this, you never know. He right. Might open Jeff, it for give you. me a call. Um, because I mean, they're, they're with Project Kuiper. 
you know, does it, I mean, does does Project Piper actually have this kind of software on board now anyway? I mean, not, are, they put, are they building that into their system? Who not knows? that we're aware of. So that's, I mean, that's, that's maybe a, a separate answer, but um, we've been a bit astounded that there is not, this capability has not already been developed and deployed in other places. And we can talk a little bit of why uh, we think, you know, we, we are kind of the first to the trough here. But, you know, to go back to why the Igniter program is really important for us is that we've learned after entering these types of markets before that these type of programs which assist companies like ours in getting exposure to the ways in which to do business and the folks that kind of are in the know um, as well as kind of resources and mentorship really shorten that time that we have to take and the investment that we have to make in order to take this amazing capability and put it into operation centers and decision makers' hands where it actually generates value, saves the taxpayers money, increases national security um, you know, readiness and, and all those types of things that we're trying to do with the program. And so, Carrie. When's it going to be ready? Um, I'm going to give the classic project management answer and say it depends. So it absolutely (laughs) depends on what kind of engagement we get. So I think Kim kind of touched on the fact that being a small business, working with the DOD is challenging. And that's why, you know, having things like the Igniter program, having the CIBR program are incredibly helpful. But, you know, there's security clearances, there's NIST compliance. And so we are on our way marching towards all of that. And then there's, you know, talking to the right people and getting the right contracts in place. So I would say it's a moving target, but we're ready. So absolutely. Well, Carrie, Cameron, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.